right, well, let's get started. We'll pray and then dive into our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can uh, join back together uh, to study Genesis and just have a better understanding of, of creation, of the fall, so many um, foundational um, questions and answers to what we see in our world today. So we just pray you bless our time uh, as we dive into Genesis 3 this morning and think about uh, the fall and ultimately the, the consequences, the results of that, uh, as we look at that even more next week, um, where we feel the effects of that and we see um, just the corruption of the world. And so help us to think through this, help us to reflect upon uh, even how we can withstand temptation um, through your grace and through your spirit at work in us. Uh, we pray for uh, youth group and, and uh, equip classes downstairs, uh, that you would just bless those. We pray for our service in, in just a little bit, that you would challenge our hearts as we study Colossians and give Pastor Justin the words to say. Um, Lord, just help us to worship you this morning. And even as we resume our, our youth group and kids club ministries tonight, God, we just lift them up to you and pray uh, that you continue to work through um, this kind of spring semester uh, in those ministries as we seek to share the gospel and just minister to, to youth and to teens and um, children. So, God, we just lift the day up to you and pray that we would uh, truly worship you today in spirit and in truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are, are on to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, up to this point in our study, we've seen God's perfect creation. You know, we saw the, the first uh, six days of creation in chapter 1. We looked at day 7, the start of chapter 2. Then, it, of course, we looked specifically in the rest of chapter 2 about, about the creation of man and the garden and just his setting, the creation of woman, uh, the institution of marriage is where we left off there at the end of chapter 2. And so we come to chapter 3. Up to this point, everything's been perfect. Everything in God's creation has been uh, deemed as good or very good. And then we come to chapter 3, and of course this is where we know everything falls apart and this perfect creation of God that we don't experience today, we find the reason why here in chapter 3. So let's unpack this uh, original temptation and, and sin and uh, seek to understand uh, what, what the text is telling us today. We'll read Genesis 3 verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And we'll stop there this morning. So, first of all, we're introduced to the serpent here in verse 1. The serpent uh, was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Um, any other different translations for that word crafty? They're just a description of the serpent. Does anybody have a different uh, word cunning, yeah, that's a, a, a shrewd, yeah, shrewdness is a good synonym. Anything else? Subtle, so you guys pretty much nailed shrewd, sensible, clever, cunning is kind of the idea here. So there's something about this creature 
that in and of itself is, is kind of a subtle, crafty, um, clever cleverness to it. This is, of course, can be used in an evil sense that we're going to see here in describing the servant because he's subtle, he's crafty in his temptation. Um, but there's actually a positive sense that this word can mean as well. You think about Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So there's a positive aspect of you know, that craftiness or that cleverness can be used in a positive sense. But here we're going to see that this serpent is used in, and that sense of cleverness is used in a, a wrong way, in an evil way. Okay? It mentions that this creature is a beast of the field. And so it's interesting to think about uh, the previous chapter in chapter 2, Adam names specific animals. We talked about uh, a few weeks ago where Adam probably didn't name every single animal on the planet, maybe just the animals in the vicinity of the garden. And even it doesn't mention creeping things, it mentions specifically beasts of the field. So this would have been one of the animals that Adam would have been brought to Adam that he would have given the name to. So I think that's interesting that he would have had some familiarity with this animal. Um, of course, that all happened prior to Eve being created, but it's, it's worth noting and seeing that uh, term, beast of the field. Okay? We're not sure how similar this animal would uh, have been to snakes today. Um, we see later in chapter 3, as we see the curse given specifically to the snake, it's told, or to the serpent, that it would crawl in its belly. Um, so some people think, well, then this was a snake that had legs. And, of course, we have creatures today called a legless lizard that have these little spots where they used to look like they used to have legs. And, of course, evolutionists will say, and even some snakes, I think, have what they call vestigial limbs, where it looks like they used to have legs. And so evolutionists will say, yeah, see, they evolved to where they lost their legs. But it could very well be, just backing up what Scripture says, that maybe these were creatures that had legs that could stand upright, that could see eye to eye uh, with man, and then part of the curse was that those, those limbs were lost, okay? So let me ask this question as we think about the serpent. Is there anything in this passage, okay, either what we read or even if you read, read the rest of chapter 3, is there anything in this passage that gives us the identity of the serpent? I'll give you a minute just to look. You can even look down to verse, verse 14 through... Um, probably 16, see a couple mentions of the serpent. But is there anything that tells us the identity of the serpent? In this passage. As you're looking and probably not finding anything, let me ask a follow-up question, okay? Who, who is the serpent? Okay, Satan. Now, how do we know that? As, it was, as I said, and as you're looking, there's nothing here in Genesis 3 that tells us that the serpent is Lucifer or Satan or anything like that. So how do we know that the serpent is Satan or is the devil? Any ideas? Okay, we know, yeah, ultimately he's referred to the, as the adversary of God later, and we see this adversarial type work here. Let me let you know, because it is pretty explicit in Scripture of, of who this serpent is, that it is Satan. So Revelation 12, 9 uh, talks about the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. 
the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then later in Revelation 20, it says he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So you come full circle to the end of God's word in Revelation and you see that uh, clearly this is who is tempting, who is either possessing this creature um, and speaking through it, and that seems to be the most likely sense, that it's a creature that, that somehow he's taking over and, and communicating to Adam and Eve through. And so we see this clear mention in Revelation that this is, this is Satan, right? And we see really the full scope of it in, throughout Scripture because um, in verse uh, 16, or so, yeah, 16, um, let me find it here. Oh, verse 15, sorry. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is spoken to the serpent. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So here's a picture as God's cursing the serpent. We know, as we're going to get to this probably next week, this is a picture of what Christ would do, right? That his, you know, the serpent would, would bruise uh, the heel in the sense of Christ dying on the cross, like this immediate death and seeming victory, but... Through Christ's death, the, the head of the serpent, the head of Satan and his work is crushed. So you really see this in the full picture of the gospel as well, the identity of who the serpent is. Okay? So we don't have a lot of information in Scripture as to the timing. Uh, we, we know as we look through Scripture that Satan was one of God's created angels. And we're going to look at a couple passages where he exalted himself and then there was the fall uh, where, where a third of, of God's angels were cast out, um, but we don't know the timing of this. There's no, nothing in Scripture that tells us this happened in any certain time frame. We, we think that probably angels were created somewhere between day one and day four, as it says that they were there to witness the foundations of the earth being set. Um, so it could be the very first day of creation, or maybe when the stars and the heavenly bodies are created, that's part of, of them being created. And so it seems as though, the, of course, the fall of those angels would have been somewhere between when they're created and this point. And again, we don't know at what point, uh, how, many, how, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden prior to this temptation. Um, what are y'all's thoughts on that? How long do you think Adam and Eve were in the garden prior to this encounter with the serpent? Yeah. Right, like the eighth day or something like that, maybe. Okay. Well, let's let's stretch it further, because um, I actually have had this question: Who's to say they weren't in the garden for millions of years? What would your What would your pushback to that be? Nine sixty nine, yeah. And Adam, of course, it mentions that he lived nine hundred and something years. Which the person that asked that, you know, threw out, well, that could just be from, you know, the time of the fall or whatever, nine hundred and something years. Um, my thought is, God's command to them is to be fruitful and multiply, right? Um, and there's no mention of any children being born as they're in the garden. You know, I imagine that perfect conditions, Eve would have been pretty fertile, so. 
you know, if there was a chance of her, uh, you know, conceiving, having a child, that would happen pretty quickly. And so there's no mention of that. Some would say, well, you know, just because there's no mention of that doesn't mean there weren't kids born. But if you think about it, if there were children that were born prior to the fall that didn't have that sin nature, then there'd be a whole race of people that were free from a sin nature, right? Wouldn't need redemption and that kind of thing. So it seems to me this is a pretty short time. Um, Not maybe like you said, maybe not a day, but there was one uh, person, I think I can't remember what century he lived in, but he proposed that this was the 10th day. And his reasoning was that was the day of of atonement. The first month, the 10th day was when Christ, uh, you know, that's when the day of atonement was. And of course, when picturing Christ's ultimate sacrifice. And so they would say, maybe that lined up with God's sacrifice of the animal to cover their sin. And so as that commandment's given later, it's on the first month and the 10th day. So that's all speculation. We don't know for sure, but it seems that there's not a long time that they're in the garden prior to this encounter. Okay. So somewhere between that, the creation of angels and however short of a time it was as they're in the garden, um, Satan would have fallen. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. I'm not going to read that, but if you want to make a note of that and read it, Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 talks about, alludes to the pride with which um, Satan had that led to him falling. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, I'll read this because it's a little shorter, uh, references that as well. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. So here's an allusion to Satan's falling, that it was pride that he sought to exalt himself above God and, of course, was cast down for that. So those are a couple of references that allude to that. So... Somewhere before this temptation, Satan falls with the angels, and now his heart is set to try to destroy God's creation, destroy uh, really the crown of his creation, mankind, by tempting uh, them to sin. Okay, So we see in verse 1, um, the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then the second part of that verse is here a question. So he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? In the garden. First of all, what is odd about the fact that we see the serpent asking Eve a question? Is there anything odd as you read that? Yeah, a talking snake. Anybody ever seen a talking snake before? Hopefully not. Maybe you were hallucinating or something like that. But um, it's odd for us to think about animals talking, okay? Um, And so we don't know. The conditions prior to the fall, you know, we know there are some animals today that can mimic uh, human sound, you know, parrots or different different birds that can copy the sound of speech. And so they basically sound like they're talking. Um, That could be the case here that maybe the serpent is able to mimic speech. And so maybe Satan's, you know, speaking to the serpent to to mimic that. Who knows? Um, We know that there are, you know, certain uh, more intellectual, I guess, animals like apes that, you know, they can teach sign language to communicate that way. It could be that maybe prior to the fall, animals could talk. They could commune, communicate with human beings, and then after the fall, maybe that was destroyed because of the temptation 
of the serpent. So we really don't know anything we talk about as speculation, but it's definitely worth realizing this is kind of an odd encounter that the snake is, is talking to Eve. And so maybe she should have noticed that. Hey, this is odd. If the animals didn't speak, I should be on alert. Maybe just her newness with the garden, you know, she hasn't encountered an animal that can speak, or maybe all animals spoke, and so this wasn't uncommon for her. But we see this question that he asks um, her, and what in the serpent's question creates, creates doubt in Eve? What is it that the way he asks the question creates that seed of doubt? Okay, just that, that question. Did God actually say? I mean, that's the question that we hear today, right? Is this really what God says? Is this really, you know, is God's word really true? Can we actually trust it? Absolutely. Did God actually say? But then what else? Is there anything else in that question that creates that seed of doubt in Eve? Okay, that's a little bit later when the statement, yeah, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more, but just this first initial question in verse 1. Yeah, the way he phrases it, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God had commanded? No, so he's, he's even asking the question in a sense of, man, God is very restricting. He really told you you couldn't eat of any of the trees, so it's already casting a seed of doubt into God's goodness into God's provision uh, of, of Eve. And so just enough of a way of asking it that begins to create that seed of doubt in Eve's mind. So this subtle question causes a seed of doubt to creep into Eve's mind. And we've talked about this in various settings. You know, doubt itself is not a bad thing, right? As we walk through our Christian life, there are times where we might have questions of doubt or we want to question uh, things we find in God's Word. But ultimately... How do we, I guess I'll just ask it more generally, ultimately how can we deal properly with doubt? We have a doubt about something we see in God's word or a doubt about any kind of truth. Um, What is the proper way we we should go about dealing with that doubt? Prayer, I think, yeah, absolutely. Ask God to enlighten you, to give you uh, wisdom. What else? Yeah, ultimately, it goes back to his word, right? If we just let doubt fester in our minds and use our own sinful reasoning many times to try to come to a conclusion, or we look externally from God's word, then that usually just makes the doubt grow even more and can create unbelief, right? So doubt can, if not dealt with properly, doubt can lead to unbelief. Whereas if we go to God's word, if we really seek to understand through his word, um, God can many times give us greater faith as we've dealt with doubt, right? As we study his word, as we pray about it, um, he can actually use doubt to, to, to grow our faith, right? So we need to go to God's word and to the, the ultimate source. 2 Corinthians 11.3 cautions us against this same kind of temptation today. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthian believers, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So even our doubts today are driven many times by uh, spiritual opposition. Satan and his, his angels and uh, you know, the, de- the demons that would seek to lead us away and tempt us. So we have to be careful. We have to be sure that we're not deceived like Eve uh, to let our doubt grow and, and fester and, 
we, we don't deal with it a proper way. Okay, so the proper way for Eve to have responded, what would, have, what did, what would it have been? How could Eve have just kind of nipped it in the bud right from the beginning and dealt with this doubt that he plants the seed of? Yeah, no, right. Not that he said that, but this is what God, this is what he said, right? In the story, he didn't say it that way. God actually said, like that would have been the great response. No, God actually said, we can eat freely of all the trees of the garden except for one. Um, And so, yeah, that would have been the proper way to just look back to this is what God said. And she, she tries to do that, we see. But actually in her response, we see a couple, a couple nuances of how she doesn't quite directly say this is what God said. Look at verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So we actually find here... Um, it's very clear that she adds to what God commanded, and we'll get to that. But there's actually something she somewhat leaves out in her response um, to what God actually said. Do you, do you notice it there? The original command is back in verses um, 16 and 17, I believe. Um, yeah, 16 and 17 is where God's initial command to Adam was. So look at that, and then look at her response in verse 2 and 3. You notice just a subtle way that she sort of subtracts from what God says? Say again. Okay. And what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what the tree was, yeah. And and that's part of it, definitely a subtlety. Does anyone have the, I think the King James maybe uses a different uh, adjective. Does anyone have the King James? I feel like somebody mentioned. Um, read verse um, 2 and 3 for us. Okay, and then go back to verse 16 of chapter 2. Sorry, that's what I meant to have you read. 2.16. Okay, so... Is that word freely, which I think the ESV says surely, but I like the way it phrases that because even that word gives a sense of freedom. It gives a sense of, look, you, you can take advantage of all the trees, and it talks about God creating all these trees that were good for food, that were pleasant. You know, you can eat of everything. And so even in a response, she doesn't necessarily use that word, well, we have complete freedom to eat of everything. It's just more, well, we can eat of all the trees, or we can eat of the trees in the garden. But then to your point as well, Pastor Justin, it mentions um, specifically the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But even the way she says it is, um, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, which it's, it's funny that 
as we talked about the trees, uh, and I think it mentions those first in verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then it says what? The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we talked about how it seems as though there's all these trees around the garden, but the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are in the middle or in the midst of the garden. So they're almost right there together. And so even in the way that she says, the tree that's in the midst of the garden we can't eat of almost makes it sound like maybe they couldn't freely partake of the tree of life or something like that. So it's just a little bit of a subtlety as she, it seems like she takes a little bit away from God's command. What does Eve add to God's original command? This one's a little more direct. We can see this pretty clearly. Yeah, don't even touch it, right? Um, why do you think it is she, that's added? Any thoughts? Why, why is that added on to the command? Yeah, it could be that she's adding that um, herself, just saying you can't even touch it. Could be that, you know, when God gave this command to Adam, Eve's not even created yet. It's on day six. She's created after this command is given, it, it appears. And so it could be that maybe Adam, as he communicates the command, he draws a, an extra boundary. Like, hey, God told us we can't even eat of it. And don't even touch it. Don't even get near it. Don't get close, right? could be that maybe he, as he's telling her to protect her, he's adding that. Or it could be, again, that she's just adding that herself. But we see that, again, it, he's creating this sense of doubt in God's restrictiveness, right? God is, and we're going to see that fleshed out in his direct lie. But he's trying to create a seed of doubt. God doesn't really care for you like you should. Look how restrictive he is. And so even the way she adds to this command and makes it more restrictive than it even was, I think just helps the doubt grow, uh, grow more and more, right? So we can, of course, look to this and see a practical application. We, we need to be careful not to take from God's word today, to, to lessen his commands or to take out, out of his word, but we need to be just as careful not, that we not add to God's word, right? That we not make God's word more restrictive than it is in an area that it speaks to, right? We can do that today in different areas, and you know, personal boundaries, I think if we say, you know what, I, I don't want to get as close to sin as I can, I'm going to draw a personal boundary, so I'm careful. I, those aren't bad, but it's when we start to project those upon other people as though this is what God said, that's when we cross the line, right? That's what the Pharisees did, right? You're to keep the Sabbath day holy, but we're going to have all these specific restrictions where if you walk this many steps, you've broken the Sabbath. Now, those wouldn't have been bad personal things to say, hey, I'm not going to walk this much, or I'm not going to do this, but when we start saying our standard is God's standard, that's when we, we, we err, right? So we see her adding to God's command, almost making his command seem more restricted than it actually is, okay? So we can trust that what God has communicated is sufficient, right? We don't need to take from it, and we don't need to, to add to it. It's sufficient as God communicated it. And so we need to just be careful to communicate what God has said, okay? Verse 4 and 5, after her response, we see Satan's no longer, and the serpent's no longer beating around the bush and just trying to ask questions and create doubt. Now he's straightforward, all out lying against who God is. Look at verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? So the, the serpent lies. Um, this lie, what, what is this? What um, doubts, I guess, about God's character does this lie attack? What, what parts of God's character does this attack? Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so God's not tr- truthful. He's not. Therefore, he's not trustworthy. Right. Uh, you won't surely die. God just knows that. You know, you'll know good and evil. So, yeah, it's saying God. God's a liar. God didn't mean what he said. Right. He's just bluffing. You're not surely going to die. His his um, punishment is not as severe as he said. He's just kind of bluffing. Right. That's part of it. What else? What other parts of God's character? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's holding back. He's holding back something good from you, so he's not good, right? He he's selfish. He's he's not really good because there's something that would be good for you to have that he's not giving to you. Absolutely. So God's bluffing, um, you know, God's holding back from you. And so we see, uh, you know, we see these same exact lies today. And in our minds, as we're tempted, we can have the same thought process, right? Well, sin's not as bad as God said it is, or the punishment's not as bad as he really said it is, or, you know, he just is keeping something good from me back. Or ultimately, as we see Eve give into this temptation, it's eventually I know better than God is what her what her conclusion is, right? Well, if God's really not truthful or trustworthy and he's not really good and I can't really trust what he says, then ultimately I get to call the shots. I know more than he does. And that really, that's what, what we think anytime we sin. Yes, God said this is wrong. We shouldn't do it. Or this is right and we should do it. But I'm going to make a determination on my own of what's right and what's wrong, right? Um, so that's ultimately the temptation that she gives into. John eight forty four tells us about Satan, and again, this points us to the identity of the serpent here in chapter 3. In John eight forty four, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we see the creation of, of lying even here in Genesis 3 as he lies about uh, God and about his nature and about the consequences of if they eat of the fruit, okay? So, Satan's temptation, the serpent's temptation, um, Eve begins to think on it. Instead of turning, or instead of speaking what God said, no, God is right, you're wrong, you're a liar, get out of here, she begins to look to the fruit and temptation begins to, to grow. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay? So there's three things. What three things do you notice, or does she notice, about the fruit? There's three things that she's being tempted as she's thinking about um, taking this sinful action. There's three things about the fruit that she thinks about what what are they okay so delight to the eyes yeah 
Okay, yeah, good for food, right? And then what else? What's the third one? Yeah, would give her wisdom, right? Um, it's, it's, it's cool that this matches perfectly with what 1 John 2.16 says when it comes to even our temptations today. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So these three areas are really the way we're tempted today. Right, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, and it's it's interesting that they line up perfectly with Eve's temptation. Right, she she saw it was good for food. Right, that's the desire of the flesh. That's or as maybe the King James says, a lust of the flesh. Right, those things that maybe aren't bad in and of themselves, but we seek to find fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure in in something that God has said we shouldn't find pleasure in. Right, so it's the desire of the flesh. She sees that it's good for food. Then the desire of the eyes, it's pleasant, right? It, it's beautiful. It's aesthetically pleasing, right? Uh, and then the last one, the pride of life, it'll make, us, it'll make me wise. So it's interesting to see that these same three areas were tempted, the same three areas that, that Eve is tempted in this one temptation. And it's also interesting, you know, as we think about it, too, we see in this, this verse kind of an amazing reality. So Eve looks on it. She makes the decision that she's going to eat, and then what, what happens at the end of chapter, or at the end of verse 6? What does she do after she eats? She gave some to her husband, and where, where has he been? Seems like he's been right there all along, right? Now, we don't know if um, right in the aftermath of the serpent's temptation, if she looks to the fruit and eats it, or maybe... You know, some have said maybe he went away and as she's kind of contemplating, she's looking at it maybe a few days, who, who knows. But it seems like the text suggests that this is pretty immediate in the aftermath of the temptation and that all along Adam's been there and instead of using his God-given role to step in and to say, look, you need to get out of here, you need to quit lying about God and stepping up and, you know, stepping in between the snake and, and his wife, as I think God, you know, designed him to do, to be a protector of her. Instead, he's passively sitting back, and she's being tempted, and then she's taking the fruit and giving to him, and he's eating. So, uh, and that, that's what we see, ultimately, the responsibility throughout Scripture for the sin nature and for the corruption is given to the man, right, to Adam, because he's the head. He's the, you know, there's this idea of headship that Adam embodies that ultimately Christ, as we're going to see, um, embodies as well a proper headship and so you know some have said well when eve ate adam loved her so much he didn't want her to suffer the consequences of sin so so he kind of nobly ate of the fruit too so that he would die with her that's nowhere portrayed in scripture right that there's anything noble about what he did so it seems as though he's given into the temptation just as much and not exercising his role as as the head of the this household that god has created and so Adam fails, and as the head of mankind, he's thus given that responsibility of plunging mankind into sin, which then passes down to each of us as his descendants, right? We're, we're you know, referred to as in Adam. We're, we're dead in our sin. We're born with a sin nature. He is our head and as the human race, and so we are his descendants. But it's fitting as we think forward to the gospel, and, you, and I encourage you to turn over to Matthew chapter 4, that we ultimately see the... the perfect obedience and resistance of temptation by Christ 
in these same areas. So in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, I just want to read these. And it's a very familiar passage, but notice, again, those three areas of temptation. They may not be in the same order, but the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life. Tell me if you can discern which one of these temptations fits in each of those categories, okay? So it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is this? what category is this first temptation? Turn the stones into food. You're hungry. It'll, it'll fill you. It'll sustain you. Which one of those... Desire the flesh, desire the eyes, pride of life. Which one? Desire the flesh, right? Uh, is it wrong for him to desire food? No, but he understands that using his abilities that God's, you know, that he has, that God has put him there to exercise to ultimately fulfill the gospel and to point to who he is, he's not going to abuse those to just fulfill a, a need that he has, right? So yeah, the desire of the flesh. And what's Jesus' response? It is written, right? Just what Eve should have said. No, God said this, right? So then the next temptation, verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So which one is this? Is this the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, you think? Yeah, I think it's pride of life, right? Hey, you're the son of God. If you throw yourself off the temple, the angels are going to swoop down and everyone's going to know who you are and they're going to worship you. It's going to be fantastic, right? This wasn't God's plan, right? This wasn't part of how God wanted uh, Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah. And so, again, Jesus, it is written, Don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So here we see that uh, desire of the eyes, right? Look at all the kingdoms of the world. This is why you came to redeem mankind. I'll give it over to you. You don't have to suffer the cross. All you got to do is just bow down and worship me one time. And so again, Jesus says, go away. It's written, you should worship the Lord your God only. So same three areas that we're tempted, the same three areas that Eve and Adam fall in are the same three areas of temptation that Jesus uh, withstands in his weakened state of not having eaten for 40 days and 40 nights or, or probably had much to drink. And so... We see him perfectly withstand the temptation to be our perfect redeemer. And so we see, ultimately, again, flip forward real quickly to Romans chapter 5. And we see just the beauty of the gospel in all this. Because in Romans 5, verse 12 through 21, we see a contrast between Adam and Christ. Right? Adam failed. He plunged mankind into death as our head. But look what Christ did. And if we put our faith in him, now he is our head, right? We, we are his children. We're born again. So look at these verses in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, right? And death through sin. 
And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam sinned, and so everybody else is plunged into sin and its consequences. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam's a type of Christ, ultimately, as we're going to see. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase in tre- the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I just love the beauty of that, right? We're, because of Adam, we're plunged into sin, a sin nature. We're plunged into death. We're plunged into condemnation. But through Christ's act of obedience, resisting temptation, living a perfectly righteous life, dying on the cross, paying the penalty of our sins, rising from the dead, through his actions, we have life and we have freedom and we have justification. We're made right before God. And so everything that Adam does that is evil, Christ sets right, right? He redeems us. And so if we put our faith in him, and I love that part where we have to receive it, right? It's not a universalism that, hey, now... Jesus has set everything right, and so now everyone's good to go. We have to receive it by faith, right? We have to set ourselves uh, under the headship of Christ through our faith in him. And so I love how even, and we're going to get to this even next week, how even from the onset of sin entering the world, this is all part of God's plan of redemption that we see throughout Scripture. And so um, we see just the beauty even of the gospel, even in the midst of, of the fall. So any thoughts or questions before we close with prayer okay debbie That's a good a good uh, way of bringing it a little more to what we're used to. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, did you have something? Mhm. Mhm. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's a description of this particular animal that may not in and of itself be a, a bad thing, that it's, it's subtle. You know, it's just something about its characteristics that make it that way, which can be used positively, but I think as Satan maybe possesses this animal, they're used in a, in a wrong way. I mean, that's what Satan does is he takes 
God's good creation and twists it just a little bit to produce evil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we know, yeah, I think we know Satan has fallen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that the car- the animal in and of itself had any fallen nature. Um, and, and it, I mean, again, if we think this was pretty quick after creation, there's probably only two serpents in the whole world, a male and a female, as it seems like that that's how God created it originally. And this would have been one of those animals that God brought to Adam to name. So there would have been a male and a female. So I imagine it's just describing the subtlety of this creature that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but Satan, who is who has at this point fallen, then takes that and uses it in a in a wrong way. That would be my understanding, yeah. 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 Right, and we, we honestly, we see all of creation suffer under the consequences of the fall, right? All of creation is groaning because of the corruption and groaning for that, I think, ultimate day of redemption. So even if the snake itself is cursed, you know, really the whole earth is cursed because of sin. So I don't think it's necessarily anything specifically like that animal was bad or had a fallen nature. I think it's more, and ultimately that picture in verse 15 is of Christ crushing the head of the serpent on the cross, that sense of, you know, his ultimate defeat of of the enemy. So just my thoughts, but good, yeah, good question, good observation. So we got to wrap up. It is 12 till. So let's pray real quick, and then we will be dismissed. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can trust it. And I pray that even as we go through maybe ups and downs in our life, maybe doubts creep in, uh, may we not go within ourselves, may we not go to the wisdom of this world, Um, what feels good, what looks right, what maybe exalts ourselves. But God, may we go to your word. May we rest in your character, your nature, your goodness, um, that you're not holding back. You're not bluffing when it comes to the consequences of sin. Um, We can trust you. And and so just help us when we have those doubts and those temptations to look to your word and to look to you. And uh, so we just thank you for the picture of the gospel we see as Christ came and um, undid everything that Adam did and that those of us who have our faith in Christ uh, are under under Jesus. So we just thank you for that reality. May we meditate upon it today and worship you. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.